So we're in 2 Kings chapter 7. Let's pray one more time. Father, I ask that you will speak to us through your word tonight. And we're so thankful that we are, Lord, recipients of your Holy Spirit. Because we know with your spirit within and the word coming from without that, uh, that we have an opportunity to understand far beyond what we could otherwise. So we ask for the, the marriage of your spirit and the word tonight in our hearts and in our minds. And Lord, I, I know what I have in my notes. I know what, where we're going kind of with the teaching. But, but Lord, I, I pray as Russ already did that you will speak to each of us as we need to hear you. And that you will draw to our attention those things that are most important for each one of us individually. As well as drawing us closer to you by your word as a body tonight. And we thank you for these words. We, Lord, we just praise you that you saw fit to give us the Bible. Not as a textbook but truly as a living and active sword that can pierce deep into our hearts. We pray for a deep piercing tonight and ask that you will just speak your words, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Lamentations, chapter 4, verse 9, Jeremiah the prophet wrote, Better are those who are slain with the sword than those slain with hunger. For they pine away, being stricken for lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women boiled their own children. They became food for them because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Jeremiah wrote this. Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. And he wrote this in the book of Lamentations, which is a series of five, uh, five laments. Five funeral dirges, really, for the city of Jerusalem and the people of Judah after they had been taken into captivity in Babylon. And Jeremiah was passionate about this people and it broke his heart. And what he wrote, he saw with his own eyes, the hands of compassionate women who boiled their own children. He saw Israel, Judah, the kingdom of Judah, literally reduced to cannibalism. We ended there, actually, last week. It was history for Jeremiah looking back. He wrote this all around the 500s, probably just after 586, which was the fall of, of Jerusalem. But it was history that absolutely confirmed prophecy. History that confirmed prophecy. Deuteronomy 28, verse 49, as we read last week, I'll read it to you again, just part of it, not the whole graphic thing. But Moses said, The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar from the end of the earth as the eagle swoops down and indeed the eagle was the symbol of Babylon as the eagle swoops down a nation whose language you shall not understand why? because they babble <laughs> the Babylonians a nation of fierce countenance who will have no respect for the old nor show favor to the young it shall besiege you in all your towns throughout your land which the Lord your God has given you then you shall eat the offspring of your own body the flesh of your sons and of your daughters and the Lord your God has given you during the siege and the distress by which your enemy will oppress you we need to understand Moses prophesied that event he prophesied it some some 600 or so years, no longer than that, 800 years prior to it actually occurring. Which is just incredible to me. Bible prophecy blows my mind. Not because it's written down, but because of the way it's fulfilled. And I think it's wonderful the Lord gives us the word because he, he, he shows us these things, He declares these things, He prophesies these things. And then within the word, even prior to Jesus, we see direct and explicit fulfillment of the very things He said would happen. 
And the sins of Israel and Judah, both kingdoms, the divided kingdoms, reached a horrifying level as they actually turned to cannibalism. At least twice. Twice in biblical history. The siege of Jerusalem, as I mentioned, that Jeremiah talked about in 586 B.C. And earlier in the siege of Samaria by the Arameans around 850 or so B.C. And in the case of Judah, Moses' prophecies were precisely fulfilled Again, 800 years after they were stated. In the case of Samaria, Samaria, they were precisely fulfilled 600 years after they were stated. And I want you just to keep that in mind tonight as we go through these three chapters. Some of this stuff we can move through really quickly. But I want you to keep in mind the literalness of prophecy fulfilled. And we'll come back to that thought. We will pick up tonight where we left off. Israel under siege in Samaria. Start back in chapter 6, along about verse 24. It says, It came about after this that Ben-Hadad king of Aram gathered all his army and went up and besieged Samaria. There's a great famine in Samaria. And behold, they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and a fourth of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. And I don't really know why you would buy a fourth of a cab of Dove's Dung. I looked it up in the commentaries and none of the commentators would touch it. As the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him. Some of you are going to get home and you're going to go, oh, touch it. (laughs) King of Israel was passing by on a wall and a woman cried out to him saying, help my lord, O king. And he said, if the Lord does not help you, from where shall I help you? Now see, this was the attitude of Jehoram, the king of Israel. Hey, if God can't help you, what are you asking me for? She said, uh, well, he said, what's the matter with you? And she said, the woman said to me, give me your son that we may eat him today, and we'll eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him, and I gave, and I said to her on the next day, give me your son that we may eat him, but she's hidden her son. Not fair. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. And he was passing by on the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. Now, you need to understand something about Jehoram here. He was not in repentance. Though sackcloth was a sign of repentance, Jehoram was far from it. And we know that because of his attitude towards God. Hey, if God can't help you, what are you asking me for? The reality is, he wasn't wearing sackcloth out of a repentant heart. He was wearing it out of self-pity. Woe is me. He's the victim. He's sunken into the self-pity. He's blaming God. And the reality is it was his sin. And the sin of the people of Israel that landed them in the position they were in in the first place. And so it is true with us. It's not God trying to be harsh on us. It's our own sin that lands us in the place that we often end up. As Paul wrote in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. And that is such good news, because the reality is, as we've talked about many times, we are sinners. We have a sin nature. And left to our own devices, we're going to make those wrong decisions, much as we don't want to, as Paul said, I, I find that there's sin in me, evil in me, and the good that I want to do, I don't do. I practice the very thing I don't want to do. I've come to realize something through the years. And looking at Jehoram and the position that he's in here and, and thinking about redemption. Gang, redemption, while being absolutely a gift of God's grace, still requires something on my part. You know what it requires? 
It requires responsibility. A willingness to say a recognition that I am a sinner in need of a Savior. That's my responsibility in this. Because until I come to the point of saying, yes, I need Jesus, I will never truly accept His grace. It's nice. Isn't it nice that we have a graceful God who just loves us? And and that's nice and everything, but I'm such a good person, I really rarely need it. (laughs) It's my responsibility to recognize that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Incredibly, that mentality of recognizing ourselves as sinners in need doesn't increase self-pity. So you might think it would. Instead, it nurtures thankfulness and compassion. It makes God's grace so much richer when we realize that we desperately need it. It grows in us compassion and kindness and understanding and a real confidence in God's gift of salvation. But Jehoram's missing this. He's so full of himself. He blames Elisha, blames God, and he sends the man to have Elisha killed. And that's when the Lord gives this amazing prophecy. And we'll pick up in verse 1 of chapter 7. Then Elisha said, listen to the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow, about this time, a measure of fine flour will be sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. In other words, in 24 hours, not only will the siege be over, But food will be so plentiful in the city that you'll be able to spend a penny for seven quarts of flour. A a shekel for twice that amount of barley. Fourteen quarts of barley is going to sell for pennies on the pound the next day. I mean, that's an amazing word in this moment where we just heard about a woman eating her own son. That's how desperate things were inside the city gates, the city walls of Samaria. And yet Elisha brings this prophecy that is unbelievable, incredible. How could this possibly be? Even if the siege were to end immediately, where are they going to find that much food? It just, it's unthinkable. In fact, in verse 2, the royal officer on whose hand the king was leaning answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? And then he said, Elisha said, Behold, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat of it. And the royal officer seals his own fate with his lack of faith. It's impossible. Well, not only is it possible, but you're going to see it with your own eyes. You're just not going to eat it. And we'll see this played out, this prophecy fulfilled the very next day. But the royal officer seals his fate because he fails to recognize a simple truth. And this is it, gang, and listen closely. Salvation is always nearer than we think it is. When we're at our worst, when we're in our most desperate strait, salvation is always right there. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, sayings of Jesus, Luke 21, 25, he says of the end times, there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars, and on the earth dismay among the nations, and in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear, and the expectation of things which are coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory, and when I hear that verse, I get excited. The whole idea of Jesus coming with power and great glory. And the idea, and I don't have time to get into it tonight. I know I say that a lot because it's so many little things running around in my head. But the truth is, we're going to see Jesus coming in great power with great glory from behind Him. 
We're not going to be looking up and seeing him coming. We're going to be coming behind him. And I got verses I can share with you later to talk about that if you're curious about where I'm going with that. Pretty cool. And I'm not going to do it now, Dan. You're going to have to ask me later. (laughs) But he says in verse 28 of Luke 21, But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Well, wait a minute. Is he talking to us? No, he's not. He's talking to Israel. There's a specific prophecy for Israel. Lift up your heads at this point when all this happens and you see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and glory. Lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. It's Israel's redemption. Our redemption will have taken place seven years earlier than this when we're caught up and called home. I was challenged on that this week. That rapture theology. It's interesting to me. From time to time, people want to take it up and and say, you know, okay, so you're one of those pre-trib, pre-millennial dispensationalists. I'm like, whatever the label is, I take the Bible literally. I do. I do believe that he means what he says. He says what he means. And a literal rendering of the scripture makes that rather clear. But they say it's always darkest just before the dawn. And the glorious return of Jesus is going to come at a time in Israel's history when nothing has ever seemed as dark as it will seem. And Israel will be at that place, that horrible place, kind of like the people in Samaria are right here in our story. That place where it is so desperate, it is absolutely impossible to believe that salvation could come, and salvation is right there. Right there. Remember that in your life when things are not going well. That Jesus is right there. We get on what psychologists call the spiral of depression. And we start to talk ourselves down this spiral and down we go until we're just in this pit of despair because everything, and we think of everything that's bad that's going. You ever do that? When you're bummed about one thing, how quickly you get bummed about the next and the next until there's such a pile of stuff on top of you, you don't even remember what the original thing was? Circle of despair. You spiral down, and yet Jesus says, I'm right here. And all that stuff, man, your salvation is right here. Right here. Well, with things as bleak as they seem in Samaria, how does the Lord pull off this seemingly unbelievable prophecy? Love this story, verse 3. There were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate. And they said to one another, Why do we sit here until we die? If we say we shall enter the city, then the famine is in the city and we will die there. If we sit here, we'll die also. Now therefore come and let us go over to the camp of the Arameans. If they spare us, we will live. If they kill us, we will but die. (laughs) It's no different. These guys are at the place where they realize wherever they go, they're probably going to die. But at least if they go out to the camp of of the Arameans, they have a shot. Maybe they'll be nice to us. Maybe they'll run away when they see us. I don't know. So they arose at twilight, verse 5, to go to the camp of the Arameans. And when they came to the outskirts of the camp of the Arameans, behold, there was no one there. Crickets. You know, it's just silent. Where's this great army that's been besieging Samaria for all this time? Verse 6, for the Lord had caused the army of the Arameans to hear a sound of chariots and a sound of horses and even the sound of a great army so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. And it was just four goofy lepers. (laughs) And this is what God does. I mean, it's just wonderful. These four guys are trudging up the road, thinking, maybe maybe we'll get something to eat. They come over the crest of the hill, and everybody's gone. 
Because the entire army of the Arameans thinks it's a massive attack. Four lepers. It's great. It says, uh, Therefore they arose and fled in the twilight. They left their tents and their horses and their donkeys, even the camp, just as it was, and fled for their life. They dropped everything. In fact, it's better than that. It says, When these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they entered one tent and they ate and drank and carried from there silver and gold and clothes and went and hid them. And then they returned and entered another tent and carried from there also and went and hid them. These lepers are having the time of their lives. This is just great. Not only do we have food, but we got riches. Woohoo! We got the entire camp of the Aramans. Well, it tells us, verse 9, finally conscience strikes, and they said to one another, We're not doing right. This is a day of good news, but we're keeping silent. If we wait until morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, let's go and tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city, and they told them, saying, We came from the camp of the Aramans, and behold, there was no one there, nor the voice of man, only the horses tied and the donkeys tied, and the tents just as they were. Yeah, right. The gatekeepers called and told it within the king's household. Verse 12, Then the king arose in the night and said to his servants, I will now tell you what the Arameans have done to us. They know we're hungry. Therefore they have gone from the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying when they come out of the city, we'll capture them alive and get into the city. The tragedy of King Jehoram's thinking is he's missing salvation. He's so full of himself and his self-pity and his blaming God that when salvation comes, he just can't believe it. No, 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 no. It's got to be something else. It can't possibly be God at work here. One of his servants said, Well, please, let some men, verse 13, take five of the horses which remain and are left in the city. Why aren't there very many horses left in the city? Because they've been eating them. Behold, they will be in any case like all the multitude of Israel who are left in it. Behold, they will be in any case like all the multitude of Israel who have already perished. So let us send and see. In other words, it doesn't matter one way or the other. If we go out there and they kill us or if they come in here and kill us, we're dead. Let's send someone out and take a look. Who knows? Verse 14. They therefore took two chariots with horses and the king sent after the army of the Aramean saying, Go and see. Verse 15. They went after them to the Jordan. And behold, all the way was full of clothes and equipment which the Arameans had thrown away in their haste. And then the messengers returned and told the king, so the people went out and plundered the camp of the Arameans. And then, surprise, surprise, 24 hours after the prophetic word was given, a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel according to the word of the Lord. And now the king appointed the royal officer on whose hand he had leaned to have charge of the gate. So now the royal officer is in charge of the gate. Bummer for him because the people trampled on him at the gate and he died just as the man of God had said who spoke when the king came down to him. You're going to see the salvation. But you're not going to taste of it. Verse 18, it happened just as the man of God had spoken to the king saying, Two measures of barley for a shekel and a measure of fine flour for a shekel will be sold tomorrow about this time at the gate of Samaria. Then the royal officer answered the man of God and said, Well, now behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he said, Behold, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled on him at the gate, and he died. Now, we're going to come back to this section on Sunday and camp out here for a little bit. It's a great place to study. But I want you just to notice two things before we move on. Number one, salvation happened just as Elisha prophesied it would. 
precisely, exactly what Elisha said would happen is what did happen. And verse 18 is proof positive of that. You read this and it's interesting. Verses 18 and 19 are just a repeat of verse 2. And sometimes people read along in the scriptures like that and they go, well, okay, I already read that. It's kind of redundant, isn't it? It's redundant for a reason. The Lord does not want you to miss what he just did. That his prophecy was fulfilled. Literally, salvation happened. I love the precision with which the Bible delineates prophecy. God said in Isaiah 42, verse 9, Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. And my friends, the Lord has gone to great lengths in His Word to show us the precise and literal fulfillment of prophecy. And belief, and I truly believe this, listen, belief in a literal fulfillment of prophecy is critical to sound hermeneutics. Hermen who? Hermeneutics. It's a Bible study word. It's a theologian's word. And hermeneutics simply means your method of interpreting the Bible. I used it on purpose. Because we all have a hermeneutic, whether you realize it or not. We all have a way that we approach the scriptures. Different churches have different hermeneutics. Well, some churches will, like, like I do, like we do here at the bridge, will open up the Bible and say, what does it say? It means what it says. It says what it means. We're just going to read it as it is. And part of that is just because I'm a simple-minded guy and it's a lot easier for me than trying to come up with what it might mean. Let's just take it at face value. Other churches, other people will interpret the Bible metaphorically and allegorically. Especially, interestingly, when it comes to end time prophecies and the book of Revelation. It's interesting to me that people will open up the Bible, they'll start to read through, they'll take things literally, but when it comes to prophecy, they stop and go, oh, okay, no, that's, that's a metaphor. That's an allegory. Now, there are metaphors and allegories in Scripture, the parables of Jesus among them, some of the Psalms. But we're told that they're pictures and metaphors and allegories when they come about. It's made very clear for us to understand. And so, when people approach these end-time prophecies, both in the Hebrew Scriptures and in the book of Revelation, oftentimes they will say, well, I don't understand this, I can't get this, it's too hard, so we'll just say it means something else. And the moment you go there, you can make the Bible say whatever you want. The moment you go there, I believe you've got the word of truth. Because it can mean anything. Now I can stand up before you tonight and make this into anything I wanted to if it's an allegorical, metaphorical book. What does the Lord say? In Isaiah 46, verse 9, he says, Remember remember the former things long past. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things that, which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. So again, God has taken great pains to show us His intentions to fulfill everything He has spoken by way of prophecy. And I mean great pains. Even to the point of, of the excruciating detail of Jesus' death on the cross that you can read about in Isaiah 53, or Psalm 22, or various other places in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. God says, I'm going to tell you right now exactly what's coming so that later when it happens, you'll look up and say, you're God. You really are God. I believe you. Jesus, with his own apostles, walking along the road for those three years of ministry, told them numerous times, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to hand me over to the chief priest. They're going to take me out. 
They're going to nail me up to a cross and I'm going to die. And three days later I'm going to raise from the dead. He told them that over and over. And I can't imagine what they were thinking when they were surprised. It's a picture. It's one of the word pictures. It's an allegory. I can see Peter and John discussing this thing. What do you think? I think it's got to be metaphorical. (laughs) And we giggle and laugh, but we do it today. Listen, gang, when God has worked so hard to give prophecy and then to show us precise fulfillment, as even in our story, why do we think the end times would be any different? Why suddenly when we get to the book of Revelation do we slam on the brakes and go, oh, no, no, but not this book. Everything else, sure, but not here. Not regarding Jesus coming. Why would God play games like that? I'll tell you, He wouldn't. So salvation happened just as Elisha promised. Now, now you might say, Rick, does it really matter how we choose to interpret Scripture? I mean, aren't we, as long as we claim Jesus as Lord and Savior, isn't that good enough for our salvation? Well, yeah, I think, I think that's probably true. But be careful. Because again, the road of allegory tends to lead you away from truth. Whereas the literal road of Scripture, it is what it is. We have to be careful that we don't end up like Jehoram's royal officer who say, no, these things just can't be. It's just not possible. Because not only did salvation happen just as Elisha prophesied, but secondly, judgment happened just as Elisha prophesied. The royal officer disbelieved the literal word of prophecy that Elisha had given. He saw the salvation of the Lord, but he was trampled to death before he could partake or eat of it. And that's what a Christ-rejecting sinful world is going to experience. The exact same thing. If Jesus comes at a time, well, Jesus will come at a time when the world has rejected him, the world becomes the royal officer. They will see the salvation of the Lord, but they will not experience it. Which to me is the greatest tragedy of all history. Matthew 24:29 says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and with great glory. Everyone's going to see this, gang. Believers and non-believers alike are going to see the coming of Jesus. But the tragedy is, there are those who will see the salvation of the Lord, but not experience it. Revelation 1.7 says, Every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him, so it is to be. Amen. And gang, I've mentioned this before, Philippians chapter 2, saying, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, whether in heaven or on earth or under the earth, and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone. The truth is there are going to be those who are confessing that out of praise and there are those who are going to be confessing it out of reality and fear because they never believed on Jesus or accepted Him as Lord and Savior. Knowing this, what then should be our response as believers? To say, glad we're in, sorry you're out? (laughs) Or instead, might we understand something like the lepers did back in verse 9. They said to another one another we're not doing right this day is a day of good news but we are keeping silent this day is a day of good news gang do you realize we are living in the age of grace right now 
We are living in the day of good news. This is the time right now, the last 2,000 years, from the moment of the crucifixion forward, from the resurrection forward. This is the day in which we live, and it's a time of good news. It's a time we have opportunity to say, hey, you can choose to accept Jesus right now, and your salvation is instantaneous. You can be saved today. This is the good news. And like the lepers... We know it's the day of good news. The question is, are we keeping silent? They say if we wait until morning light, punishment will overtake us. Same thing here. If we wait until morning light, punishment will overtake us. I don't mean overtake us like we're going to lose our salvation. The punishment is going to come rushing on if we keep putting off opportunity to talk about Jesus. Paul said in Romans chapter 10, verse 15, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. We're saved lepers with good news. That's us. Saved lepers with good news. So I just want to ask you, when was the last time you shared the simple gospel message with a non-believing friend? And I don't ask that to make anybody feel guilty. I really don't. It's not about, oh, I've got to tell someone about Jesus this week because Rick's, you know, he's going to bring it up again on Sunday. And I want to at least be able to raise my hand and say, yeah. I asked the male guy and he just kind of walked off and looked at me weird. But I did ask, you know. It's not why I bring it up, gang. When was the last time you just invited a non-believing friend to come to church with you? Oh, Rick, that's so old school. When was the last time you shared the truth of Jesus? This is the day of good news. So let's embrace it as such. Now, chapter 8. Chapter 8 contains various stories of both salvation and judgment, the first of which is probably a little bit out of order in the narrative. Because this first story involves Elisha's servant Gehazi, who we've already seen became leprous. And this took place before he became leprous. So it's a little bit out of order, but it's an important story in, in the story as we go forward here. Verse 1, chapter 8. Now Elisha spoke to the woman whose son he had restored to life. That's the Shunammite woman. We read about her just recently. He had restored her son to life. He had resurrected her son. And, and Elisha spoke to her. He said, Arise and go with your household and sojourn wherever you can sojourn. For the Lord called for a famine. And it will even come on the land for seven years. And so the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. At the end of the seven years, the woman returned from the land of the Philistines. And she went out to appeal to the king for her house and for her field. In other words, while she was gone, she lost everything. Her land holdings, her home, everything was taken over by other people. So she goes now to the king to appeal for it. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Please relate to me all the great things that Elisha has done. And as he was relating to the king how he had restored life, restored to life the one who was dead, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and for her field. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is the woman, and this is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. When the king asked the woman, she related it to him. And so the king appointed for her a certain officer, saying, Restore all that was hers, and all the produce of the field from the day that she left the land, even until now. Now this story is inserted here, I believe, for at least a couple of reasons. At least that I could figure out. The first one is simply this. The Lord is faithful to people of faith. The Lord is faithful to people of faith. It's not an exclusive statement. It's just a statement of truth. This woman, if you go back and you read about her in 2 Kings chapter 4, had tremendous, tremendous faith in the Lord. She really believed God. She really had a trust. 
And Elisha was impressed by that. And you can read about that story. But she is a woman of faith, and God is faithful to her. And it's amazing how he works this thing out. Psalm 34, verse 15. The psalmist writes, The eyes of the Lord are are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. You might say, well, wait a minute. I, I, I love the Lord, and I'm faithful, and I trust the Lord. I, I really am walk. I believe I'm walking with the Lord, but I'm not, not feeling delivered out of my problems here. Well, the Shunammite woman was out of the land for seven years during the famine. And she lost everything. She lost her house. And so at one point in her life, it may have looked like she didn't have any deliverance either, but she ultimately did. And how did God work that out? Well, not only is the Lord faithful to people of faith, but the Lord's chronology is never coincidental. He has her come back to the king of Samaria at the exact same time that Gehazi is relating her story. Coincidence? I think not. So that before she even enters the hall of the king, the king's heart is already turned toward her. He's already feeling gracious toward her. And wanting to hear about her story. And in she walks and God works it out. He, he, she didn't just happen to approach the king at the right time. God's timing is absolutely perfect. Amen. But don't forget that God's timing is not our timing. And we may go through seven years of famine. And we may lose things that we think are so altogether important, but God has not forgotten. His chronology is not coincidental. His eyes are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. By the way, now I see something here. I see a picture emerging out of this story. That could be wrong, but I see this woman as a type of Israel. This woman is a Jew herself. And this Jewish woman now is protected from a seven-year famine. How long is the... Tribulation supposed to last seven years. And who is it that is protected through the tribulation? Well, we know that at least the Bible tells us at least a third of Israel will be saved, will be brought through that. Two-thirds will perish, Zechariah tells us. But a third is going to be saved. Scripture says in Zechariah 13, 8 and 9 and Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 8 that a remnant of Israel will be protected through the coming worldwide tribulation. We also know that for at least the last three and a half years, this remnant will be protected in a place in the wilderness. Revelation chapter 12, verses 6 and 14. Then Isaiah verse, chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. And the verses are all up there, so you can just jot them down. Just moving quickly on this. But here's the best part. The Shunammite woman, as a picture, I believe, of Israel, once that seven-year famine is over, what happens for her? She's restored to her land. She receives back the inheritance that she had lost, which is exactly what Ezekiel tells us in Ezekiel 48 happens for Israel. In fact, Ezekiel 48 goes through and goes tribe by tribe and tells the exact allotment of land that will be given to each of the 12 tribes of Israel following the tribulation. Yeah, but Rick, maybe that's just a metaphor for... uh, 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 uh. Is the Bible literal or is it not? I believe when Ezekiel is prophesying that that prophecy will come true just as specifically as the one we just read about in the last chapter. 
One other thing on the Lord's chronology, it's not coincidental for you and for me either. In Romans chapter 5, verse 6, Paul says, While we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Oh, what great news. At the right time, perfect time in history, exactly when it needed to happen, Jesus died for us. Well, going on, verse 7 of chapter 8. Then Elisha came to Damascus. Now Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, was sick. And it was told him, saying, The man of God has come here. So the king said to Hazael, and that's actually how you say it, Take a gift in your hand and go and meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, Will I recover from this sickness? So Hazael went to meet him and took a gift in his hand, even, the, even every good thing of Damascus, 40 camels loads. And he came and stood before him and said, Your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, has sent me to you, saying, Will I recover from this sickness? And then Elisha said to him, Go say to him, You will surely recover, but the Lord has shown me that he will certainly die. Now watch this. Verse 11. He fixed his gaze, that is Elisha, fixed his gaze steadily on him until he was ashamed and the man of God wept. What's going on here? Elisha is looking at this guy, Hatzael, and, and he, he's trying to hold it together. He's looking at him. You know, the whole idea of him fixing his gaze is, is just keeping it straight until he can't do it any longer. And he just, he just busts out and starts to cry. He starts to weep. Odd. Hatzael says in verse 12, Why does my Lord weep? And he answered, Because I know the evil that you that you will do to the sons of Israel. Their strongholds you will set on fire and their young men you will kill with the sword and their little ones you will dash in pieces and their women with child you will rip up. Then Hatzael said, but what is your servant who is but a dog that should do this great thing? (laughs) Great thing. And Elisha answered, the Lord has shown me that you will be king over Aram. Verse 14, so he departed from Elisha and returned to his master and who said to him, what did Elisha say to you? Now this is the, the current king of Aram who's sick. What did the prophet tell you? He says to Hazael and he answered, he told me that you would surely recover. And on the following day he took the cover and dipped it in water and spread it on his face so that he died. And Hazael became king in his place. In other words, Hazael went back and said, I'm going to be king. Let's speed up the process. And the next morning, when the king of Aram, who was recovering, before he was awake, this guy goes in there and takes a wet blanket and stuffs it over his face and holds him down and kills him. Suffocates him to death. There is a downside of being a compassionate prophet like Elisha is. And we've seen already how intimate he is, how he goes to one person at a time, how he meets individual and very personal needs. But there's a downside to having this kind of heart of compassion. Elisha feels what Jeremiah would feel when he lamented Jerusalem. He feels the very same type of thing that Jesus felt when he wept over that same city. Or what Paul felt when he considered his Jewish family who had rejected Israel in Romans chapter 9. Elisha had a broken heart for what he knew was coming for Israel. That's why he wept. So looking into the eyes of the man who would bring havoc to the country of Israel, to the people. And so he weeps. I was thinking about this today and I'm wondering, do we feel like that? 
Forget about just inviting someone to church who's lost. When was the last time you wept over someone who doesn't know Jesus? When was the last time you looked out at this world and instead of saying, it's so sin-sick and disgusting, instead of saying that, that you actually found your belly aching for the lostness of people in this world? And the truth is, compassion is painful. It's a lot easier to do ministry if you don't care about people. (laughs) A lot easier to move in the world and just... Go from one day to the next if you don't care. But the thing is, we're called to care and compassion exists to move us into ministry. Mark chapter 6 verse 34 tells us that Jesus went ashore and he saw a large crowd. And he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. I love that. What is the first thing Jesus does for the people when he feels compassion? He teaches. He gives them the word. Because he felt compassion. The Greek word there is a great word. It's sloknizomai. The, the short word is slokna. Slokna means literally bowels. That's the word for compassion. When you see the word compassion translated in the New Testament, it's slokna. Bowels, guts. Because for the Greeks, that was the seat of emotions. It wasn't the heart. They wouldn't say, I'm heartbroken. They would say, my bowels are crushed. <laughs> it really isn't as romantic as the whole idea of heartbreak. You know, How are your bowels? Just, oh, she's wearing me out. I, just, I love her so much that my bowels are all in a twist and a wad. I just love her. You know? But compassion is a bellyache, isn't it? When was the last time you actually felt it in your heart? When you got excited about something. Remember we say we have butterflies in our stomach. Not in our heart. I don't go, wow. I mean, we feel in our guts. And that's why this Greek word is perfect. Splachna, compassion is a bellyache. You see, as, as wonderful as it is to know that Jesus saves, there is an equally bitter ache that comes into my stomach, my compassion, when I understand that if Jesus saves, there are also those who will be lost. The people that matter to me are going to hell unless they accept and receive Jesus as Lord. I don't like to talk about that. Well, you know, we've got to talk about that. We have got to keep that reality before us. Otherwise, our mouths just stay shut. We're like the lepers, once again, enjoying the fruits of salvation, the day of of the gospel, the day of good news, and not sharing it with anybody. Sometimes, again, I think it would be just easier not to care. What is, what is that? The antisocial personality disorder? I just don't care about people. <laughs> Whatever. Someone dies, that bummer. You know? But the reality is, you can't just sit in the bar and study the Word and keep it all in. You can't do it. The more you're in the Word, you know what happens? The more the Word wants to get out. Jeremiah 20, verse 9. Jeremiah said, I will say, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, is just burnt out. I can't do it anymore, but he says, but his word is in my heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I'm weary with holding it in. I can't. I can't help it. If the word causes you a compassionate bellyache, then the best thing to do is to get the word out. Just get it out. Share with people the love of Jesus Christ. Elisha does. He blurts the word out. He can't contain it. He's weeping. He's upset. And he just tells this guy, this is what's happening. I can't hold this truth in any longer. And the next day, Tatsa'el suffocates Ben-Hadad. Historically, it was 841 B.C. when this happened. 
And he becomes the next king of Aram, and indeed Israel did suffer for it. Going on in verse 16. Now in the fifth year of Joram, which is also Jehoram, same name, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Jehoshaphat being then king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, became king. So there are two Jehorams or Jorams, one that is king of Israel and one that will become king of Judah. So both, both of the divided kingdoms have a Joram as king. And this Joram who becomes king is the fifth king of Judah. Um, and by the way, if you notice, sometimes there, there seems to be some overlap in the kings. Well, this king Joram, son of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat at this time is going off and fighting a lot of wars. And so what he's done is call his son up as co-regent, as co-king. So Joram is now king over Jerusalem in in Judah while Jehoshaphat is off fighting the wars and that's how some of this actually adds up well verse 17 says he was 32 years old when he became king and he reigned 8 years in Jerusalem wow (laughs) he walked in the way of the kings of Israel just as the house of Ahab had done for the daughter of Ahab became his wife and he did evil in the sight of the Lord now hang on a second verse 18 is normally applied to the kings of Israel and this Jehoram is a king of Judah but we're told that this king of Judah is now walking like the kings of Israel, like Ahab before him. Why is that? Well, it's obvious in verse 18, because the daughter of Ahab became his wife. He married badly. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. However, the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David, his servant, since he had promised him to give a lamp to him through his sons always. In his days, Edom, this is in Joram's days, Edom revolted from under the hand of Judah and made a king over themselves. And then Joram crossed over to Zair with all his chariots with him, and he arose by night and struck the Edomites who had surrounded him and the captains of of the chariots. But his army fled to their tents, so it was an unsuccessful campaign. And so Edom revolted against Judah to this day. And Libna, which is a a little small kingdom that was southwest of, of Jerusalem, they revolted at the same time. And verse 23 says, The rest of the acts of Joram and all that he did are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah. Now I've got to tell you one more thing about this Joram. He married badly, as we saw, which is yet another example, and there are many in the scriptures of exactly what Paul warns about in 2 Corinthians 6.14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. It's interesting, this verse kind of pops up an awful lot as we're going through the study of the word. Don't be bound together with unbelievers. doesn't mean don't spend time with unbelievers. You have to, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. doesn't mean that you reject unbelievers, or that you don't care for unbelievers. It says don't be bound together with them. As in a marriage contract, as in a business deal, as in some way where you are covenantially connected or bound to a person who has no faith. Take note of faith when you connect yourself to another person. That's what the Bible's telling us. You've got to be careful with this because if you bind yourself to a person of no faith, then you are setting yourself up to fall as hard as they do. So the Bible warns against it. Jesus said in Matthew 18, 19, He says, If two of you agree on earth about anything that you may ask, it will be done for you by my Father who is in heaven. Two believers, bound together before the Lord, have a strength with Jesus that a believer and an unbeliever do not have when they are bound together. He says in verse 20 of Matthew 18, For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. When we agree with or connect with or bind ourselves to no faith, we don't have the power of Jesus to hold us together. 
And we're setting ourselves up for some problems. But not only did this Jehoram marry badly, <laughs> he died badly. Check this out. Second Chronicles 28 gives us the details of his death. Or 21. Second Chronicles 21.18 says, After all this, the Lord smote him in his bowels with an incurable sickness. And it wasn't compassion. Now it came about in the course of time at the end of two years that his bowels came out because of his sickness and he died in great pain. Just thought you might want to hear about that. Verse 24, going on. (laughs) So Joram slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David and Ahaziah, now Judah's king number six, Ahaziah, his son, became king in his place. In the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, the king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. That's not a good sign. And his mother's name was Athaliah. She's an amazing woman. You'll hear about more in coming weeks. The granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. He walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did evil in the sight of the Lord like the house of Ahab had done because he was a son-in-law of the house of Ahab. So now Jehoram, who married a daughter of Ahab, He now does what Ahab does, idol worship. And so now his son becomes king and is passed on to the next generation. So this Ahaziah does the same thing, idolatry. They walk in the way of the house of Ahab. Now verse 28, and this is, by the way, setting up chapter 9. He went with Joram the son of Ahab to war against Hatzael, king of Aram, in Ramoth-Gilead, and the Arameans wounded Joram, or Jehoram. That's the king of Israel. So King Joram returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds which the Arameans had inflicted on him at Ramah when he fought against Hatzael, king of Aram. Then Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down, went down from Jerusalem, because you always go down from Jerusalem. He went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel because he was sick. And this is all preparing us for what's coming in chapter 9. It's just letting us know this. So keep this in mind. Joram, king of Israel, has been wounded in battle. So he's healing in Jezreel. And Ahaziah, the king of Judah, goes down to visit with him and pay him, you know, just some concern. And it sets the stage in chapter 9 for a brutal and bloody story, which we'll cover here in just a moment. Now, Elisha the prophet, verse 1, chapter 9, called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Gird up your loins. And take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth-Gilead. When you arrive there, search out Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi. And go in and bid him arise from among his brothers and bring him to an inner room. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee. Do not wait. Get out of there fast. Why would he have to get out of there fast? Well, this son of the prophets has a difficult task that Elisha has handed him. He has to anoint a new king of Israel while the current king of Israel is still in power. And that can be a tricky thing politically. So that's what he's sent to do. He has to go and anoint this guy. You're the new king and out, get out of there because you're going to find yourself in a big mess if you don't. Verse 4. So, the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramaphiliad. And when he came, behold, the captains of the army were sitting. And he said, I have a word for you, O captain. And Jehu, he said, for which one of us? And he said, for you, O captain. He arose and went into the house. And he poured the oil on his head and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord, even over Israel. 
And you shall strike the house of Ahab your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male person, both bond and free in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, both houses that were wiped out for their idolatry. And verse 10, the dogs shall leave Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. Then he opened the door and fled. <laughs> now Jehu came out to the servants of his master, and one man said to him, Is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? And he said to them, You know very well the man and his talk. And they said, It's a lie. Tell us now. What? Come on, fill us in. Give us the dirty details here. And he said, Thus, and thus he said to me, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Well, they hurried, each man, and took his garment and placed it under him on the bare steps and blew the trumpet, saying, Jehu is king! Jehu is king! Verse 14, So Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against the current king of Israel, Joram. Now Joram, with all Israel, was defending Ramoth Gilead against Hazael, king of Aram. You remember this from the last chapter. But King Joram had returned to Jezreel to be healed of the wounds which, with which the Aramans had inflicted him, on him when he fought with Hatzael, the king of Aram. So Jehu said, If this is your mind, then let no one escape or leave the city and go tell it in Jezreel. Well, then Jehu rode in a chariot and went to Jezreel, for Joram was lying there. And Ahaziah, king of Judah, had come down to see Joram. Watch what this Jehu does. The watchman was standing on the tower in Jezreel when he saw the company of Jehu as he came and he said, I see a company. And Joram said, Take a horseman and send to meet them and let him say, Is it peace? And so a horseman went to meet him and said, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Jehu said, What have you to do with peace? Turn behind me. In other words, join me. Get back here and ride with me. And the watchman reported, the messenger came to them, but he did not return. Then he sent out a second horseman who came to them and said, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Jehu answered, What have you to do with peace? Turn behind me. Join me. Get on board. Verse 20. The watchman reported. He came even to them, and he did not return. And the driving, this is a watchman on the wall, he says the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi. I would understand that if they were saying the driving is like the driving of Hannah, the daughter of Rick. <laughs> we know how she drives. But he says, no, it's the driving of Jehu. There's something about the way Jehu drives. He's a furious fighter. This guy already has a reputation, gang, that precedes him, and we see it play out. He is a brutal, bloodthirsty man. He's a captain of the army, he's a fighter, he's tough, and as he's coming toward Jezreel, he is driving hard and fast and furious. He drives furiously, verse 20, verse 21. Then Joram said, Get ready. And they made his chariot ready. And Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, went out, each in his chariot. And they went out to meet Jehu, and they found him in the property, watch this, of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Naboth. Remember Naboth? When Joram saw Jehu, he said, Is it peace, Jehu? 
And he answered, What peace, so long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcrafts are so many. And Joram reigned about and fled and said to Ahaziah, There's treachery, Ahaziah. So now you've got the king of Israel, Joram, and he's fleeing, and the king of Judah, Ahaziah, and he's fleeing because they realize they are in bad trouble. And Jehu drew his bow with his full strength and shot Joram between his arms. And the arrow went through his heart and he sank in his chariot. And Jehu said to Bidkar, his official, Take him up and cast him into the property of the field of Naboth, the Jezreelite. For I remember when you and I were riding together after Ahab his father, that the Lord had laid this oracle against him. Quote, Verse 26, Surely I have seen yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his son, says the Lord, and I will repay you in this property, says the Lord. Now then, take and cast him into the property according to the word of the Lord. What is going on here? The long prophetic arm of the Lord reaches full length, and he is now paying back the house of Ahab completely for what was done to Naboth. Who's Naboth? Back in 1 Kings 21. I'll read just part of this to you. 1 Kings 21. In verse 21. Ahab wanted a field. King Ahab of Israel had all of Israel. He had more than one palace. He was a rich king. He had everything he wanted. But as he looked out at his palace, he saw Naboth's vineyard. And he thought, those are some fine looking grapes. I would really like that. And he goes down and says, hey Naboth, can I have your field? Can I buy it from you? Naboth says, you know, I, I can't sell it. it was, it's been in the family a long time. It's actually my inheritance, which means legally he was not even allowed to sell it based on uh, Torah law. And so Ahab, we're told, gets all upset and frustrated and sad and flops down on his bed and has a pity party and Jezebel's wife comes in and says, What? It's the deal. Naboth won't give me his field and I throw my paper and everything. <laughs> And Jezebel says, I got it. I'll take care of it. And she has Naboth murdered so that he can have the field. And we're told in 1 Kings 21 and verse 21, Elijah said, Behold, speaking for the Lord, I will bring evil upon you and will utterly sweep you away and will cut off from Ahab every male, both bond and free in Israel. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and because you have made Israel sin. Of Jezebel also has the Lord spoken, saying the dogs will eat Jezebel in the district of Jezreel. And the one belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. And the one who dies in the field, the birds of heaven will eat. Surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, had incited him. And Ahab died exactly as the Lord said. He would die a short time after that. But what about Jezebel? It's now been 25 to 30 years and Jezebel, the queen mother, has just increased in both wickedness and with witchcraft. She is, she is a siren. J. Vernon McGee had this to say about her. He said, Jezebel was cold and sexless, yet she was beautiful and alluring. Strong men yielded to her seductive charms. No one resisted her, not even the mighty Ahab. 
She introduced the worship of Baal to Israel. She imported 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Ashtaroth. She was reckless, violent, rapacious, and ferocious. She killed God's prophets. Blood flowed freely from her influence and for a time it seemed as if God was in hiding and doing nothing. This woman was just allowed to live on and on 25 to 30 years. You know people in the world like that and you go, man, they just seem to get away with it. Everything's fine. Look, look at what they did, but they still are living fine and I'm you know, dealing with their fallout. And there had to be people in Israel saying, where's God? Where's the God of justice? Because Jezebel is just getting to live on and on. Well, now we hear tale of her violent end and it's incredible and brutal and precisely as prophesied. And by the way, the reason why Jehu says we need to take and cast up Joram into the field of Naboth is because God said that's where the offspring of Ahab would be killed. Precise, literal fulfillment of prophecy. But watch this as we read on. Verse 27, When Ahaziah, the king of Judah, saw this, he fled by way of the garden house. Jehu pursued him and said, Shoot him too in the chariot. We weren't supposed to shoot him. But he did. They shot him at the, at the ascent of Gur, which is at Ibleem. But he fled to Megiddo and he died there. And his servants carried him in a chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his grave with the fathers in the city of David. Now in the eleventh year of Joram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah became king over Judah. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. She's now living in this place called Jezreel. Where did God say she was going to die? Jezreel. She's living there, it says, And she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out her window. Jezebel is an older woman now, but she's still playing the game, trying to look sexy. As Jehu comes riding up, she calls out the window as he enters the gate. Verse 31, Is it well, Zimri, your master's murderer? The silver-tongued siren is calling him Zimri. Why? Because Zimri was an earlier king of Israel who had killed Elah treacherously. And so she knows now that Jehu has killed Joram. She's aware of this. She knows the treachery. And so she's, she's toying with him. She's saying, How's it going, Zimri? I know what you've done. You know? Is it well? And he lifted up his face to the window. And he said, Who's on my side? Who? And two or three officials were up in the window where Jezebel was standing. And they looked down at him. And he said, Throw her down! So they threw her down and some of her blood was sprinkled on the wall and on the horses and he trampled her underfoot. This is the brutality of Jehu. She falls to her death. That's not enough for him. He rears his horse back and just begins to stomp her with the horse's hooves. But when he came in, verse 34, he ate and drank. Just a day full of murder. No big deal. A little bloodletting, let's have lunch. He ate and he drank. And he said, See now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. Check this out. Get ready to be grossed out. They went to bury her, but they found nothing more than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. That's all that was left. How precise is the Lord's prophecy to say that she is going to die in the city of Jezreel and they won't even be able to bury her? And that's exactly what happened. Because by the time these guys went back out, the dogs had eaten all that was left of Jezebel. There was a skull and the palms of her hands. I mean, gross. But God said, that's what's going to happen. 
And therefore they returned and told him, and he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, In the property of Jezreel the dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel. And the corpse of Jezebel will be as dung on the face of the field in the property of Jezreel, so they cannot say, This is Jezebel. It's incredible, gang. Now Jehu, while fulfilling the Lord's prophecies, is an evil man himself. He's one of the most depraved, heartless, and bloody kings in all of Israel. And this first day out, he kills the king of Israel, the king of Judah, and the queen mother, that notorious Jezebel. And he won't stop until he wipes out the entire house of Ahab, and we'll see that next week in chapter 10. By the way, this is the last we hear of Jezebel until a little further down the road when we get to the book of Revelation just a year or two off I'm sure (laughs) Revelation chapter 2 verse 20 Jesus is giving a a letter to a church at Thyatira now there's an interesting prophetic overlay go listen to the Revelation study if you haven't heard this but he says this I have against you church at Thyatira you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess And she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness with those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. Yeah, I wish I could get into this tonight. There's so much here. And what's being talked about with this Jezebel, but she is a type, gang, the short version is this, she's a type of those who would introduce the feminine into the worship of God. Not that women can't worship God, that's not what I'm saying. She, Jezebel, introduced into Israel goddess worship. Thyatira, Thyatira in the book of Revelation, has many similarities to a church movement in the last 2,000 years that introduced goddess worship into the church that elevated Mary to a position of deity. Goddess worship. And that's what Jezebel is a type of. And that's the picture that is, that's why her name is used there in the book of Revelation. If you want to know more about that, go listen to the study in Revelation chapter 2 in the church of Thyatira. It's, it's interesting stuff. Now, these three chapters are filled with stories of both salvation and we saw the lepers and Samaria itself and the Shunammite woman all salvation and restoration are also filled with stories of judgment the royal officer who was trampled and the two king Jehorams both who were killed and Jezebel herself and they all were judged but as I studied through this this week I want to take you back to where we started this one theme kept repeating itself in every single story and that's the theme of the literal fulfillment of prophecy in short order we see prophecy fulfilled exactly as stated 300 years later in the life of Israel the prophet Daniel would write from Babylon in Daniel chapter 2 verse 20 let the name of God be blessed forever and ever for wisdom and power belong to him It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings. He establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. And here's the thing. 
Get this down if you don't already understand this. Prophecy is not probability. Prophecy is precision. When God says He's going to do it, He will do it exactly as He said He would do it. The Father made sure to include both both prophecies and their fulfillments in His Word so that we would know He's a God who keeps His Word. So that those prophecies contained in Scripture that we read and understand have, have been historically unfulfilled, we can know they're going to be fulfilled. There is no question about it. God doesn't just forget. The reason why we have prophecy stated and then fulfilled in Scripture is so that we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt the prophecy that has not yet been fulfilled will be fulfilled later. I cannot hammer that point home enough. It is so important for us to understand. When God says it, He's going to do it. We may be faithless. The Bible tells us that. But He is faithful. And He will accomplish everything He said He would accomplish. Isaiah 46.11 The Lord said, Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. And just like Michelle, when she plans roller skating night, is going to follow through. She did. We saw that. She said it was coming, and it happened, right? Self-fulfilled prophecy. (laughs) The Lord, when He says He's going to do it, He does it. And there's no question. By the way, Revelation chapter 1 verse 3 starts out with a great blessing. It says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. Why? Because the time's near. And the time is near when all this is going to come to pass. Finally and completely. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. If nothing else tonight, Lord, we thank you for showing us again examples of you following through and doing exactly what you promised. Father, there's great encouragement for us in this because we know that you said you'd save us. We know that you promised the blood of Jesus covers us and washes us clean of our sin. And so we know you're going to follow through with that. And we know we have our salvation yet before us. Father, as much as we know that we are saved, we also know a judgment is coming. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray you will motivate us every one of us to speak the name of Jesus God I ask again this week for divine appointments when we can tell people about Jesus Christ and proclaim the good news because this is the day of good news Jesus be on our lips and Holy Spirit give us the right word at the right time to speak to anybody who will listen us, fill us up for this great commission, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.